my name is Kyle, serve as lead pastor here. I want to welcome you to New Life Community Church this morning. Glad that you've chosen to, to be here today. If you're a member, it's good to see you again. If you're visiting with us, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, if you have your Bible, uh, which I, I hope you do, we'll be in Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah chapter 1. Uh, is where we'll be started today. I'll quote from some different passages at times as we go through this, uh, but this will be our, our jumping off point anyway. Jeremiah chapter 1, we'll look at verses 4 through 8 in a moment. Uh, we are in the middle of a series called What Happens When We Worship, and we're looking at what takes place when we show up on Sunday mornings. What's the significance of this? Uh, what's happening when we come together for a worship service. So not just the singing, right? It's everything that uh, falls into the category of the time we, from the time we start to uh, the time we finish. And uh, some of the things we've looked at are just really foundational truths about what's taking place when we worship, what happens in Christian worship each week. Uh, for example, we've talked about how we meet with God. You know, when we come together, we are meeting with God. When we come together uh, to meet with God and we behold God, we are being conformed to the image of His Son, which is what we're told in Corinthians. Not only are we meeting with God and being conformed, we are uh, experiencing really covenant renewal. God is rehearsing His covenant with us as we come together. We're going to talk some more about that today. Uh, but what we find is that God is always faithful to His covenant, even though we are not. And then uh, we rehearse the gospel in that. You can't rehearse the covenant without rehearsing the gospel. Uh, we have to see that we are inadequate, that we are deficient, but Christ is all-sufficient as our Savior. And so we see Christ. Uh, and then last week we talked about how we commune together. This is nothing less uh, it's a lot more than, but it's nothing less than the communion of saints. It's the coming together of God's people to worship God. And so beginning today and over the next few weeks, we're going to examine, uh, we're going to examine the conversation that's taking place on a Sunday morning between God and His people. What, what pieces are there in this conversation and why do they matter? Uh, this, co this conversation within Christian worship is what gives us the gospel shape to each service. It's why we do what we do, and we try to do it in the order that we do it in. And so the conversation that takes place between Christians and God on a Sunday morning, um, some of those pieces are this. There's a call to worship. There's a confession of sin during the service. There's preaching. There's fellowship with God. We hear about our new identity. We receive a new identity from Christ. Uh, and then there's singing. We, we sing new songs, right? There's a new song in our heart, and we sing those things. And so we'll see how those things collectively and individually form us as Christians. They are telling the story of the gospel over and over again. And today, we're going to examine the call to worship. Why do we do a call to worship? What's the purpose of a call to worship? Just as our covenant relationship with God begins with Him calling us unto Himself, so too it is fitting for our worship on a Sunday morning to begin with God calling us unto Himself in worship. And so if you're taking notes, and uh, kids, you can write this down as well in your worship guide, uh, 
the main thought today that I want to share with you is this. In the call to worship, God calls us to join His work. He hears our cries for help and promises to be with us despite our deficiencies. I'll repeat that. In the call to worship, God calls us to join His work, hears our cries for help, and promises to be with us despite our deficiencies. Now, we're going to read Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. If you would, would you please stand for that? When I'm finished reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. I ask that you respond, thanks be to God. Amen. Jeremiah 1, verses 4 through 8. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us and then you can be seated. Heavenly Father, um, we know our deficiencies well. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have called us into a relationship with you. Lord, that in sending your Son and hearing the gospel proclaimed, uh, you have drawn us by your Spirit unto yourself. And so, Lord, we are here today as, as men and women and boys and girls whose hearts are growing more in love with you. And uh, Lord, as we hear your word preached today, would you help us to adore you? Would you help us to have a stronger faith in you? Would you deepen our understanding of who you are, Lord, that we might uh, be more fully committed to you? That we might become mature men and women in the Lord? And Father, we understand again, as I mentioned, our deficiency in coming to your word. That without your spirit, Lord, we are unfit, unable to understand it. And so we ask for the help of your spirit today. Lord, would you make our hearts like good soil today? Help our hearts be receptive to uh, the seed that is your word, to the watering which is your word, that it might grow and bear much fruit in our lives. Lord, we declare our allegiance to you. We love you. We love your word. And we are grateful to be here now. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we may ask the question, why is it that every time you step foot in here on a Sunday morning, if you're on time, right, <laughs> that you hear a call to worship? Why does a worship service begin with a call to worship? Well, it has everything to do with the power of God's Word. It has everything to do with the power of God's Word. Our God is a God of words. He is a God who speaks. He has not only given us His Word, but He's given us the ability, as we just prayed for, 
to hear and to respond to His Word as well. When God speaks, great things happen. When He primarily uses His spoken Word to accomplish His purposes in the world and in the lives of His people. When God speaks, things come to life. Things grow. Things take place. And this is what is happening in Jeremiah 1 as God calls the prophet to do His work. I'm just going to kind of repeat it here so we're, we're seeing it in this light. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Now the word of the Lord came to me, the prophet writes, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. How I many you know what a prophet does? He takes the word of God to the nations, right? This is what a prophet in the Old Testament was meant for. He's taking the word of God to the nations. He's bearing on himself the word of God given to him by the Spirit of God, and he's speaking it for the nations to hear. And so the word of the Lord comes to him and calls him, but then the word of the Lord is going to be on him as he's being sent so that he might prophesy to the nations. Jeremiah says, this is too much for me. He says, ah, Lord God, behold, I, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. Jeremiah was young. And the idea of going to rulers, going to nations, going to the places that God might call him to stand up for God, to speak the word of God to these people was a bit too much. It was overwhelming for him. But the Lord said to me, again, we see the word of God, do not say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Incredible. So we see, we, we see things like, he said to me, the word of the Lord came to me, he's sending me to the nations as a prophet, which means I'm carrying the word of the Lord. And then he, he understands that Jeremiah thinks he's deficient, and he assures him in his deficiencies that, no, I'm going to be with you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of them, for I will deliver you, declares the Lord. So it ends with, Jeremiah starts with, the Lord said unto me, and it ends here with, he declares the Lord. So God is speaking on the front end, speaking on the back end, he's speaking throughout. The word of the Lord is what's prominent in this passage. It, it's, a, it's incredible that a young Jeremiah would be sent, sure. But the incredible thing that's really taking place here is that God is speaking to his man, and he's equipping him for the work that he's called him to do. And this passage really it shows us five really, I'm going to go through these fairly quickly, but five incredible things about the all-powerful Word of God. The first is this, that God's Word has authority. God's Word has authority. The Word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is an authoritative message. First, it's the word of the Lord that comes, right? But then it's before I formed you, I knew you. It's authoritative. God's word carries authoritative power. We must yield to God's word, not his word yield to us. One of the great problems with Bible misinterpretation today is that we come to the word of God with our presuppositions, our preconceived notions, our preconceived beliefs about things, and we try to insert them, mash them into the Word of God. And we get uncomfortable with God's Word when it says things that we don't believe. 
or when it says things that we don't like, or when it uses a word that we think, oh, that's a tough word. That's when we get uncomfortable with the Word of God. But we must be a people who yield to the Word of God, not force God's Word to yield to our Word. Amen? We are not authoritative. We are not all-powerful. Creation does not tell the Creator how He should run things. We yield to Him. We worship Him. And when He speaks, creation must listen. In fact, during those seven days of creation, even, this is incredible, even nothingness obeyed God's Word. Like He speaks into the void. We read in Genesis 1 verse 2 that the earth was formless and void. That there was a darkness there. That there was nothing. And God speaks into the formless, void world, and nothingness obeys His commands. Meaning He brings out of nothing everything. He creates all things out of no things, right? In his call to Jeremiah, God reminds the prophet who formed him in the womb. He's saying, before I formed you, I knew you. There's nothing that will make a man feel small than to talk to someone who is able to say to him, listen, before you were even formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. Right? I mean, whatever deficiencies you think you have before that God, he's saying, no, listen, I know you better than you know yourself. I know what I've placed in you. I have consecrated you. I have set you aside, right? And that's what we see next. God's Word imparts blessing in life. First, God's Word has authority. Second, God's Word imparts blessing in life. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So it's by God's Word that He blesses the prophet. He gives him a new life. I consecrated you. I appointed you. What's God saying? God's saying literally to him, I have set you aside. I have named you a prophet to the nations. And what does this mean for Jeremiah? It means that God has called Jeremiah to carry God's all-powerful word to the nations to do the work of God. This is God's blessing. This is life. For Jeremiah. This is good for him. The third thing we see is that God's Word brings a curse to the rebellious. God's Word brings a curse to the rebellious. We must recognize there's a warning here in this passage to those who are rebellious. He says, I appointed you a prophet to the nations, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Well, and then what does he say? Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Well, if God's word was merely just rainbows and unicorns for everyone, then why would Jeremiah need to be afraid at all? Right? Well, he recognizes that when the word of the Lord comes to a people, it comes with warnings and admonitions as well. It it comes with blessing, yes, but the blessing comes when you obey God. There is cursing as well for those who disobey God. Here's some things about Jeremiah's life. After several years of preaching, Jeremiah's family turned against him. They plotted to kill him. Over the years, he was whipped and put in the stocks. He was attacked by a mob. He was threatened by the king. He was ridiculed. 
Some of Zedekiah's princes had Jeremiah arrested, beaten, accused of treason, and thrown in jail. If that wasn't enough, he was thrown into an empty well as well. He lived through the siege of Jerusalem along with the rest and was there as the people were taken away as captives. Perhaps worst of all, though, Jeremiah was alone. He was not allowed to marry. His family abandoned him. The people turned against him and didn't believe him. He was alone with the knowledge of the horrors coming for Judah. He knew these things that the Lord was going to do, and yet no one would listen. The prophet endured so much hardship because of God's word, right? He's carrying God's word. He's not making things up. He's not going to pick fights. He's just saying what the Lord has told him to say. And he knew so much hardship because of the word of God. Why why was there hardship then from the word of God if it wasn't a curse to the rebellious? Right? It was a curse. And so they attacked the prophet. The prophet was beaten. The prophet was thrown in jail. The prophet was accursed by the people, though blessed by God. Jeremiah witnessed both in foresight and real time the destruction of his people. Upon Judah's captivity, he penned the book of Lamentations, uh, which is a highly poetic, devastatingly beautiful series of laments about the fall of God's people. Jeremiah spent 40 years telling the people what would happen. 40 years prophesying in the name of the Lord what was to come, warning the people. And they did not listen. And yet, Jeremiah's prophecies from God reminds his people there will come a time of repentance and restoration. Mixed in all of those warnings is a promise from God that he is going to be faithful to his covenant, even though the people have been unfaithful. God's word brings pain and turmoil. And most importantly, it pronounces the definitive end to the work of Satan. The fourth thing we see about God's word from this passage is that it communicates with his pe- that God communicates with his people by his word. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. It is by the word of God that that he enters into relationship with his people. It is by his word through his prophets that he communicates with his people as well. All throughout the Bible, we see that God is communicating with His people by His Word. He instructs Noah. He calls Abraham. He commissions Moses. He covenants with David all by His Word. He calls His prophets by His Word. In the New Testament, He is doing the very same things. The Word becomes flesh. Jesus Christ dwells among the people, preaches the gospel, proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand, dies for it, is resurrected, empowers his his people by what? The Spirit of God to do what? To proclaim the Word of God. This new gospel message that Christ has died to save sinners. So it's by His Word, always has been, that God is in relationship with His people, that God is bringing covenant fellowship to us. In the Scriptures, we see that God speaks first, always. His creation often responds with their inability. You know, Isaiah says, woe is me. Jeremiah says, I'm too young. Moses says, I don't speak well, right? Everybody had an issue. 
But when the Lord says, this is what's going to happen, and when the Lord says, I'm calling you to do this, guess what? It's exactly what took place because the Lord's word is all powerful. Jeremiah responds with his inability. I'm too young. I don't know how to speak well. And so God speaks again, and this time he reassures Jeremiah that I will be with you. You have nothing to fear. We see the same thing in the Great Commission of Christ. He's speaking to his disciples in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which is meant for us as well. It says, and Jesus came and said to them, right? So God, again, initiates. God the Son is initiating this covenant relationship. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, what does Christ say? I am with you always to the end of the age. What does that mean for us? Not one of us can come to the Great Commission and say, well, Lord, you're saying this, but you don't know my deficiencies. You don't know my inabilities in this. You don't know how messed up I am. Why? Why can't we do that? Because the Lord Himself says, Behold, as if He's anticipating our rebuttal, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And just as Paul says, if Christ is for us, who can be against us? Right? We have all power in Christ. Jesus comes to them. Jesus speaks to them. Jesus instructs them. Jesus anticipates their expressions of inadequacies, and so he reassures them that he will be with them always to the end of the age. The fifth thing we see here about God's Word is that God's Word is the content of his relationship with his people. It's the content by which the relationship functions. It's the content by which the relationship works. But the Lord said to me, Jeremiah writes, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I command you, you shall speak. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. This is in verse 9. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Amen. In God's word, we have all his promises. In God's word, we have all his degrees. In God's Word, we have all His commands. We have all His comforts. We have everything that we need for life and godliness, 2 Timothy 3 tells us, in God's Word. We lack nothing of that which we need to live for the Lord. It can be found in God's Word. His Word is the foundation for our Christian life. It's the way it's been for millennia. It's always been the Word of God coming to the people that relationship begins with God. And so it's by His spoken Word, which has eventually been, thankfully, we have it all written down here so that it may be passed on. That's always been the foundation for His covenant relationship with His people. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, as the people are preparing to take the land, to go into the land of which there are idol worshipers and murderers and idolaters and adulterers and all sorts of evil people. Moses says to the people from God, 
Let these things, my commands, the commands of God, be on your lips. Be written on your hearts. Teach them to your children. As you go along the way, as you rise in the morning, as you go to bed at night, as you sit around the table to eat, teach these things to your children. Why? Because that has always been the way that covenant relationship with God has been founded. It's by the Word of God. And it's in the Word of God that we come to know God. It's in the passing on the things of God to the next generation that the next generations have a chance at knowing who God is. But we've been looking at this in Sunday school, right? The last couple of weeks. In Judges, the indictment in Judges chapter 2 is that the previous generations forgot God. And so now the current generation knows nothing of Him. They weren't passing it down. They didn't obey Deuteronomy 6. They didn't write it on their hearts. They didn't have the word of the Lord on their lips when they would rise in the mornings, when they'd go to bed at night, when they would eat around the table, when they would go along the way. They weren't teaching the things of God to their children. And so in Judges chapter 2, the people have forgotten God altogether. And it says that they sought to do everything that their heart desired. That's a really bad thing because in Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, on down in the history of Israel, he's coming to the people and he's saying, do not listen to your heart because your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things, who can know it? It's Jeremiah 17, verse 9. So this is why God instructs us to write His Word on our hearts. It's why He instructs us to meditate on His Word day and night. It's why He instructs us to make His Word our way of life, as we see in Proverbs 4. So I think we've reached somewhat of a point of clarity that without the Word of God, there is no relationship with God, right? This is the, 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 there's two revelations that God has given us, okay? There's one that's called natural revelation. So I can look at the rain and I can say, you know, things need rain to grow. God has brought rain. The rain is causing things to grow. It won't be long now, we'll be mowing again, Right? Won't be long now, your spring crops will be uh, in fruition, hopefully, right? Why? Well, because God has designed the world to work a certain way. That's natural revelation. We look into all of these things, you can look at the way you are hardwired, the way you're created, and you can say, that takes an incredible God to create, to make things work the way they work in our world. Right? But natural, natural revelation is not enough to save you, nor is it enough to bring you into fellowship with God. You cannot be saved by natural revelation. You cannot look at the sun and the moon and the stars and say, Christ died to save sinners. Right? You can look at the sun, the moon, and the stars and say, well, there must be a God, but this is why so many religions worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. Because they're they're unable to arrive at God on their own. What do we need? We need the Word of God. This is special revelation. Natural revelation works with special revelation to reveal God to us. 
Amen? And so in the Word of God, we have God revealing Himself to us. In Christ, the Word of God becoming flesh, we have nothing less than God Himself coming to us. And He might be numbered among men. And He might give up the glories of heaven for a season to be numbered among men, to die our, our death for our sins, to be raised to life that we might walk in fellowship with God again if will believe that Christ did exactly what He did. You can be saved, but God must reveal Himself, and the way He reveals Himself is primarily through His Word. It's through His Word. And so in the call to worship on a Sunday morning, God is calling us to join His work. He's hearing our cries for help, and He's promising to be with us despite our deficiencies. That's precisely what we're rehearsing every time we recite our weekly call to worship. So let me just walk you through it quickly. When you walk into this room and you stand there and the first notes of the music start and Alan or someone else begins to speak and they welcome you into the service and they start saying to all who are weary and need rest. This isn't a message from the heart of Alan to you. This isn't something that the elders have pinned, thinking, hey, this is a really great thing to say. This will be the thing that kind of, you know, nudges them emotionally to help them respond in singing. When we say to all who are weary and need rest, we have nothing less than Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 in our mind. Come to me, Christ says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, Christ says, and my burden is light. To all who are weary and need rest is a call from Christ to come to Him. Amen? To all who mourn and long for comfort, you guessed it. Scripture, again. Jesus in Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. It's a call from Christ to come to Christ in your mourning and to receive His blessing of comfort. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares. Again, this isn't... You know, I, I grew up in um, the days... I guess it's still kind of cool... <laughs> But I grew up in the days where it was cool to, uh, to have a lot of problems, you know, to hate your dad or your mom or kind of wear that on your sleeves. We called it being emo. I don't know if that's still the term. Um, but all of our music reflected it, um, you know, that sing songs about how life is a nightmare. And, you know, now all of you may have that song in your head. Anyway, but it was, it was, yeah, it was like a badge of honor to feel worthless. It's like if you could feel more worthless than your friends, then, then you, were, you had it really going on. It's just really strange. It's backwards, honestly. But the truth is, is we all do feel worthless at times, right? I mean, the truth is you, you recognize that you're a sinner, that you recognize you have broken relationships, you recognize that you've caused problems, that you've messed up, if you're being honest with yourself. And in that, you start to feel worthless. And if you're feeling worthless as you come into church, you may wonder, does God care? Does He care? 
Matthew 10, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Two sparrows sold for a penny. For one penny, you can have two sparrows. That's a good deal. But the penny, right, is that thing that you'll just leave in the parking lot when it falls out of your pocket. You're happy to offer the penny to the cashier at the gas station for that little cup that sits there. You'll leave your penny in there. You're not leaving the 20 in there, right? You're not even going to leave the quarter in there. Like That's for the pennies. That's where the pennies go. You might leave a nickel, depending, you know, if you're feeling good that day. Two sparrows, one penny. And what does Christ say? Not one of them falls to the ground. Not one of them dies apart from... Uh, your heavenly Father. What does it mean? It means He's in control of the sparrows. He's in control of the sparrows. If He controls the sparrows, He must control all things. If He controls the sparrows, then He controls uh, the last breath that my daughter took. And if He controls the last breath that my daughter took, then He controls the breath that I take now. And He controls the call that He's got on my life now and the call that He's got on your life now. He controls every moment of every day. Every millisecond belongs to the Lord. Why? How do we know this? Because He controls the sparrows. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. And He goes on to say, He says, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, some of you might really be into yourself, right? You think you, you came to church today and you thought, I look good today. But I guarantee you, you didn't sit in the mirror and number your hairs today. Not, I mean, you know, for some of you it's getting easier than others, right? But you're not numbering your hairs. You know, think about the days where you had a lot of hair. You weren't sitting and numbering your hairs. Well, what does it say? God knows you so intimately that He knows the number of the hairs on your head. So not only are the sparrows important to God, but the number of hairs on your head are important to God. You are important to God. And this is what Jesus says. This is the conclusion He draws from those two examples. He says, fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Amen. So to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, He does. He cares. To all who fail and desire strength. Isaiah 41.10, God speaking here through the prophet, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Amen. To all who fail and desire strength, where do you go? You go to God. God is inviting you to worship today to help you understand the strength of the Almighty at work in your life. He says, come. To all who sin and need a Savior. That's every one of us. There's not one of us who walk in here. I mean, you might walk in here feeling strong one day. You might walk in here feeling comforted one day. You might walk in here not feeling weak one day, right? But to all who sin and need a Savior, that's every one of us. Every one of you needs Christ. And for that, 
Again, the Word of God speaks. Jesus, talking to Nicodemus, who was a follower of the law, who was doing everything that he could do on his own to have his own salvation, to make his way to heaven through his own good works, Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, how do I do that? You must have the Spirit of God give you new life. How does that happen? Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. If you believe in Christ, you'll have eternal life. And then our call to worship transitions into some new statements. It says, To all of those people, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome. From who? Jesus Christ. Again, if it, it's okay for us to have greeters out here who are welcoming you, into the, welcoming you into the building as you come in. It's okay for Jasper to get up here and say, we want to welcome our guests today. It's okay for me to get up here and say the same thing. Like It's okay for us to be welcoming and warm with one another because why? We have been welcomed by Christ Himself. And the hospitality of Christ to welcome us unto Himself in spite of who we are is worthy of us welcoming one another into the, into the house of God. But when we, call, when we do a call to worship, I cannot call you to worship. I cannot tell you, hey, you need to worship me, <laughs> right? Why? Because I'm, I'm a creature, and creatures don't get worship. The Creator gets worship. And so when we stand, we say this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ. Because if He's welcoming us, it's truly a warm welcome. It's a good thing to be welcomed by the Son of God. Romans 15, verse 7, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So we don't, we don't welcome you into here for our own glory. We're not welcoming you here so we can tabulate some numbers at the end of the year and say, hey, this is how many people we've had show up. This is how many people we have in a home group. This is how many people that got saved and baptized. We're not doing any of that. What we're saying is we welcome you as Christ has welcomed us, and we do that for His glory, the renown of His name, not our own. Amen? Well, who is Christ? And that's where... Our call to worship continues. He is the ally of His enemies. Romans 5 verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. He's the ally of His enemies. Now again, there are people who are setting themselves against God daily weakly, rebelling against Him. God is not their ally in that moment. That's where the word of warning and the words of admonition come in. But if a sinner will heed the words of warning, if a sinner will hear what Christ says from His Word and turn from his sins and turn to Christ, well, guess what? Christ has just become the ally of His enemies. Amen? And then it finishes with, and I just couldn't find a 
a set of verses more perfect for these last things than Romans 8. But it finishes, our call to worship finishes with that Christ is the defender of the guilty. He's the justifier of the inexcusable. He's the friend of sinners. And this is what we say in Roman, or what, what Paul says in Romans 8.31. This is why we say those things on Sunday morning, why we're reminding one another of these truths. What then shall we say to these things, Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul continues, but you can see the hints of him being the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of sinners already, right? But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he just continues with, he just heaps it on here. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, or sorry, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And once we've done that, we just say, welcome. Why? Because now you've been welcomed by God. Now you've been reminded of the truths of God. Now when you sing praises to the Lord, when you sing unto God, when you pray together, when you hear the word preached, you're doing it as those who've been called into worship by God himself. And unless he initiates our worship, there's no worship at all. Unless he starts the worship, there's no worship at all. Once we are called by God's word into worship, then we are welcome to come. We are helped by his spirit in coming because we'll see our deficiencies, right? To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, we see our deficiencies. And yet his spirit helps us. And we are equipped as we go from this place on Sunday mornings for the work that God has for us. But we're also equipped in that moment for the work that we do right here together. In the call to worship, God calls us to join His work. He hears our cries for help, and He promises to be with us despite our deficiencies. Let me talk to you a little bit more about how God initiates and we respond. It's important to understand that God initiates. That's what we're saying. That's what we've said from Jeremiah to what we've looked at with uh, what I mentioned earlier about just Moses and Noah and David and Abraham and Paul and, you know, all the likes. In your own life, God initiates and you respond. It's not the other way around. But because of our tendency to self-centeredness, because of our tendency to be selfish, self-involved people, it's tempting to view God as the one who responds and submits to us rather than ourselves as the ones who respond and submit to God. It's tempting to think that we are in the driver's seat. 
Jonathan Cruz, in his book, he says this. He says, it's God's Word, not man's, that has the power to constitute a relationship with God. So what are we saying? He must call us if we are to come and worship Him. As the old confession of faith says, it says, though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their Creator, the distance between God and these creatures is so great that they could never have attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension. He has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework. Again, we wouldn't be able to come to the Lord if Christ had not first come. John says this well in his epistle. He says, we love because what? Christ first loved us. We're responding to the love that we've received. We're responding to the relationship that has been begun with us. God is always the initiator of covenant relationship with Him. After all, it must be this way because He is too great for us to ascend to. You and I cannot ascend to the heights of God in any way, shape, or form, no matter how godly you think you've lived this week. None of us have given to God in a way that He, re- he should repay us. He doesn't owe us anything, right? He is God and we are not. And so He is too great for us to ascend to, therefore He must condescend to us if we are going to have a covenant relationship with Him. Another way to think of it is this, that God is the only one powerful enough to bring something out of nothing. As I mentioned earlier in creation, this is exactly what He does. He created all things out of no things. It is simply by His own powerful Word that He creates all things. Again, Jonathan Cruz was helpful in helping me understand that it's not just covenant relationship um, that he initiates, but it's in redemption and in worship as well. Let, let me read this to you. Think of creation. When we were absolutely nothing, God, by the power of His Word, called us into existence. Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. We didn't call ourselves into existence, God did. And just as He brought us out of the dark void of Genesis 1-2, that formless void area, He brings us out of the dark void of sin in redemption. John 5, Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Jesus goes on in John chapter 10, verse 3, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. John 15, 16, Jesus is saying, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. In these texts, we see that God is always the initiator. In his New Testament letter to the church of Galatia, the Apostle Paul makes the same point. The Galatians are guilty of turning to false gospels, turning to new ideas, turning to works-based salvation, or at least works-based sanctification, and that's what he gets on to them for. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? 
He's saying you've been set free from the principles of the world. You've been set free from those things, and now you're willingly wanting to walk back into that? You'll be slaves again. Paul is making it clear who starts and sustains the covenant relationship that believers enjoy. Why would we turn our back on that? 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says again, he's making the same point, but possibly more clearly this time. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, and so now he's tying it to the creative power of God. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? It's a new creation work that happens in you. It is God who speaks and makes your heart, gives your heart the ability to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He initiates and we respond. It is God alone who calls us in creation and redemption. So why would our worship services be any different? God not only does the work in making us worshipers in redemption, He does the work in our worship as well. Again, I want to read a Cruz quote here. He says, God calls us to the greatest work His redeemed people could ever take up in the created world, worship. It's the greatest work we could ever take up in the whole world that we be worshipers of God. The word church in the Greek is ekklesia, which means called out ones. In our very name, we recognize that we are those whose entire identity hangs on the fact that we are in a relationship with God in which He is calling us. Ekklesia, called out ones. You have been called out by God. But from what and where does God call us? Cruz continues. For the last six days, you have been flooded with the temptations and sinfulness of this worthless world. But on Sunday, God calls us out of that worthlessness and into His worthy presence. Psalm 84.10, the psalmist writes there, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. He goes on to say, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Cruz continues, this one day in seven will reorient us, it reshapes us, it puts the imprint of the gospel story on our hearts, and erases all the false impressions that the world has left on us about what the good life really is, right? When you feel the pull, you feel the temptation during the week that the good life is really this, that it's, I give in to what my heart desires. The good life is that I should have no restrictions on my life at all. And the God who is trying to restrict me must not be any kind God at all. He must not be a good God at all. Because He's keeping me from expressing the truest version of myself, which is the most important thing. Wrong. A true expression of a sinful nature is nothing more than depravity, which will earn condemnation in hell. But a true expression of a life redeemed by the God that created it, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're talking about life. And this is why Christ says, he's just very, you know, you don't have to read between the lines with Jesus. He's not speaking in gray matter here. He's telling you in black and white, red, depending on which Bible you have, right? In John 10.10, he says, the thief comes to steal and kill and to destroy, but I have come that they may have life and life to the full or life more abundantly. 
So the world promises life, but it's really the thief disguising uh, theft and murder and destruction. But Christ promises life. And where are you going to find life? Right here. The words of God. The Word of God. This is it. This is the God-breathed, Spirit-given Word of God. Now, to us, it's black and white, and you can buy a pretty Bible to make it feel more important. You can read it on your phone, and it'll feel like something you could just kind of throw away. But I'm telling you, the words in here are life. The words in here give life. And if you're not in submission to the Word of God, then you don't know life in God. You've been fooled. You've been duped by the world. You've bought a lie. The accuser of all accusers is accusing you. (laughs) The liar of all liars has deceived you. Cruz says, truly, just as in creation and redemption, we could say that in worship we are called out of nothing and into something. In worship, weekly worship, we're called out of nothing and into something, life itself. In the call to worship, God calls us to join His work. He hears our cries for help. He promises to be with us despite our deficiencies. Therefore, the call to worship isn't just a way to begin the service. And we may not keep the same call forever, right? But what we will always do is begin the service with a word from the Lord to His people. Something that reminds us of His character, His attributes, of how good He has been to us, of how trustworthy He is, how faithful He is. Because if we can't worship on that foundation, our worship Who knows where it goes from there? But in the call, we are recalling the very Word of God, which is what I've sought to try to show you today. And in recalling the Word of God, we're saying it is God who calls us. It is God who condescends to us because we are deficient on our own, and it is Him who reassures us by His promises that He is with us despite those deficiencies. We come each week to give God the honor that is due His holy name. And that is why we have a call to worship that reminds us of our overwhelming deficiencies. And more importantly, it reminds us of God's overwhelming sufficiency. He is all sufficient. If it were not for God's initiating call to worship, just as He does in creation, just as He does in redemption, then we wouldn't come to worship at all. But praise God that He calls us to join His work. He hears our cries for our help, uh, for help and our inabilities, and He promises to be with us, just as He has done for His people across space and time. He alone is worthy of our worship. Amen. I'm going to invite the worship team up. I will pray for you as they come. We're about to sing a song called, Yes, I Will. And it begins by saying this. I just wanted to recite it to you and then I'll pray. 
says, I count on one thing. The same God that never fails will not fail me now. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to be with your people, to join with them as my brothers and sisters in the Lord, and to worship you today. God, we thank you that we are able to worship you today because you have called us to be your people. As 1 Peter 2 reminds us that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We've been called out of darkness into marvelous light. We are the called out ones. We are the church. And so we praise you. We thank you, Lord, that you have been always good, that you have been always faithful. And so as we prepare to sing now, it's with that in mind. Yes, we will worship you because you are the only constant in our lives. You are the only true source of good in our lives. You are the only one that's faithful in our lives. And it's our heart's desire to glorify your name, to magnify you in all the earth, to make you Lord of every moment of our day, to make you Lord of every slice of our lives. Lord, help us not to hide a thing from you as if we could. Lord, help us. Help us in our deficiencies and our inadequacies to make you Lord of every area of our life. To come into submission under your word in every way that we, in every way that we're able. Form us. Form us, Father, into the image of your own son that we be like him. Lord, I thank you for the grace and the mercy that comes to us in Christ. I thank you, Lord, that for anyone in here today who's an unrepentant sinner, who's unsaved, who's not trusting in Christ, that, Lord, the same mercy and grace that has saved the rest of us is available to them as well. I pray, Lord, that you would soften their heart that you would draw them to yourself, that they would receive salvation today. We love you, Lord. We praise you for the honor we have to worship you. Thank you for calling us here today. It's in the name of Christ I pray, amen.